So we're moving up the spine a little bit now to the fifth chakra, the Pishuddha chakra at the base of the neck, just inside, in the center. The positive qualities of this chakra, calmness and expansion. And for those of you who <clears throat> don't live in California or haven't lived in California, especially those of you who haven't lived in the, out in the countryside of California, the, uh, the sound of low-flying airplanes and helicopters is a great opportunity to practice calmness and gratitude. Um, so, you know, the fifth chakra is for many people, at least in my experience, people I've talked with, is for many people the most difficult to actually get a feeling of. You know, we you're used to practicing or to feeling love in the heart. We're used to feeling control in the third chakra. And, but uh, the fifth chakra uh, is, is subtle. It's a subtle, it represents the, the ether element, which is uh, nothing physical at all really not even air anymore. And as a result, it can be a little more challenging for some people to work with this chakra. So I thought we'd start our discussion of it with a little exercise that is kind of fun. Um, we're going to do it just sitting in place where you are. Ordinarily, we might do this sitting in firm pose, but that's not on the order today. So. We're going to do the lion pose, Simhasana. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the way we do it in Ananda Yoga practice, it's a little different than it is in some um, styles of practice. What we're going to do is we're going to take a full inhalation and really try to feel energy rising in the spine up to the, to the fifth chakra as we inhale. Then we're going to hold the breath and lightly tense the entire body is the way Swami put it, is like a, like a lion about to spring. But you have nowhere to spring, just that, that anticipation, that light tension through the body. Throw the tongue out and down, and eyes wide open, but gazing downwards. So it's like the energy coming up from below, but your tongue and your eyes are sending energy down from above to converge at the fifth chakra and you get to make a funny face. So let's, let's try that a couple times. Let's inhale up the spine, lightly tense the body, throw the tongue out, eyes wide open, tongues, uh, eyes turned down. Uh-uh. We are holding the breath because if you make the sound, you're dissipating your energy is the very thing that is people are prone to do. With around fifth chakra, it's a chakra of negative quality of restlessness, of, of scattering of energy. And we want to do exactly the opposite. So this time, <laughs> this time we're going to do it the way Swami taught it, which we're going to hold the breath and really concentrate that energy in the Bishuddha Chakra, in the center of calmness and expansion, and feel the difference. Let's inhale. Hold, tongue out, eyes down. Concentrate the energy. Feel the difference. Exhale when you need to. And let's do it one more time. This time we'll add the affirmation for Simhasana. Let's inhale. 
Hold tongue, eyes. I purify my thoughts, my speech, my every action. Repeat it several times. I purify my thoughts, my speech, my every action. I purify my thoughts, my speech, my every action. And let the breath out once again. And wipe your chin. <laughs> but just close the eyes for a moment and see if you can tune in to feel a sense of energy there at the base of the neck, inside. It's the Pajuda Chakra. Chakra, again, of calmness and expansion. But it's also the chakra that controls the faculty of hearing. You can open your eyes if you like or keep them shut. But either way, as we continue on with this class, if this is the chakra that is governing your sense of hearing, see if you can hear through the Pajuta chakra. Or at least try to hear the ears sending the signals to Pajuta chakra. But try to feel that sense there at the base of the neck, the sense of hearing. It's also the chakra that governs faculty of speech. So in any conversation, it's going both ways, but both involving the fifth chakra. Now, the sense of calmness is not a passive thing. It is not a sensation, cessation of movement. I'd like to read you what Swami Kriyananda wrote about this. He said that when you get into a deep level of calmness in meditation, you begin to feel a powerful expansion of consciousness that takes you away from the ego. A powerful expansion of consciousness that takes away from ego. So, although in meditation what's happening, the things are becoming still, the breath is becoming still. The heart, we hope, is becoming still. The mind becoming still. But consciousness, which is beyond all those, if we're going deep, is not still. Consciousness is expanding. Our sense of who we are is expanding, not outwardly, but inwardly. You know, we, we live in an era of outward expansion, don't we? Of, of outward movement. And it's getting more exaggerated by the day. Energy is scattered all over the place. And there have been some very expansive ideas in this time, very expansive projects, many of them, many of them facilitated by the advent of the internet big thinking, paradigm shifts. And those are wonderful examples of expansion, but they're outward expansion. And there's a limit to where outward expansion can take us. And ultimately, if we, if we don't ever get a lid on the outward expansion, it will dissipate us. It will dissipate our energies. It will scatter our consciousness. But you know, there's also something else 
happening in this day and age. As we, you know, most of us here are familiar with the with the pattern of the yugas and how we're in a in an ascending age now, an age of energy, an age that is propelling us to be bigger, really. But that outward propulsion is also to a great degree, greater than I think a lot of us appreciate, balanced by an inward expansion. I doubt that any time in recorded history have there been so many people who are dedicating their lives to helping other people. I really don't think so. And you, you read about all the things that, that happen. You, he, you hear the stories of people who are just doing marvelous, marvelous things to, have to, to help other people. And you think, okay, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of that inward expansion that is ultimately going to take every one of us to a realization of our oneness with all that is. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And frankly, I choose to focus on that rather than on the, the outward expansion that is really uh, scattering, scattering this planet. There are many good things outward, too. I don't want to condemn them all, but, to, but the, the tendency to just go out, go out, rather than go in, because going in is the only way we can touch everything. As I said, that going outward... We're always going to bump up against a wall. There's only so far that we can go. But inward, there's no limit. Infinity. Eternity. And that is where the fifth chakra really comes in. It's an internalizing chakra if we really tune into it. And that's what's going to enable us to practice this expansion. So I'd like to practice a little bit of that with you right now with an affirmation that Swami Kriyananda wrote on self-expansion. And remember, as I mentioned earlier, fifth chakra governs the faculty of speech. So as we practice this affirmation, try to feel that you're coming from the Bishuddha chakra, that you're expanding that way. So let's sit up tall, close the eyes, turn the gaze toward the point between the eyebrows. And let's do it the way Master taught, loudly at first, but gradually going softer and softer until we're finally doing it silently, but always from that fifth chakra. To feel. And if, if you need to do it quieter in order to feel that, do it quieter. If you need to do it louder in order to feel that, do it louder. But try to be in that fifth chakra. So repeat after me if you would. I feel myself in the flowing brooks. I feel myself in the flowing brooks. In the flight of birds. In the, flight of birds. In the raging wind upon the mountains. In the, wind upon the, in the gentle dance of flowers in a breeze. In the Renouncing my little egoic self. I expand with my great soul self everywhere. I feel myself in the flowing brooks, in the flight of birds, in the raging wind upon the mountains, 
in the gentle dance of flowers in a breeze, renouncing my little egoic self. I expand with my great soul self everywhere. In a whisper, I feel myself in the flowing brooks, in the flight of birds, in the raging wind upon the mountains, in the gentle dance of flowers in a breeze, renouncing my little egoic self. I expand with my great soul self everywhere. Silently along with me, I feel myself in the flowing brooks, in the flight of birds, in the raging wind upon the mountains, in the gentle dance of flowers in a breeze. Renouncing my little egoic self, I expand my great soul self everywhere. I feel myself in the flowing brooks, in the flight of birds, in the raging wind upon the mountains, in the gentle dance of flowers, in a breeze, renouncing my little egoic self, I expand with my great soul self everywhere. And try to keep that sense of expansion now. And if you feel to open your eyes again, do so. You know, this whole idea of expansion, I must say, is, is perhaps the single most important, practical, everyday sort of tip I've gotten for living the spiritual life. Uh, and, it, and it came from Swami Kriyananda, who really talked about expansion a lot, because, you know, there are so many uh, do-thises and don't-do-thats on the spiritual path. And there's a couple problems with that. One of them is they're not much fun. Um, but another is they don't cover every possible situation. There's no way that rules can cover every situation. But your feeling capacity can. And when we just ask ourselves, in any situation in which you need to take some action, will this action make me feel bigger? Or will it make me feel smaller? Will it make me feel contracted in my heart? Or will it help me feel expanded? Because that applies to pretty much any decision you're ever going to make. And it's simple, it's not always easy, not always easy to separate the two, but if we tune into that intuitive faculty, that diction melody we're talking about, we can get a sense. What is going to make me feel bigger than before? Not egoically bigger, but freer. Okay? Less, less trapped in this sense of limitation. You know, uh, I've always admired, as so many others have, uh, President Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, his master, master said he was a great yogi, great yogi who incarnated out of compassion for the slaves in America, he incarnated to free them. And 
you don't see a lot of that uh, yogic influence in, in his life in the sense of anything outward. But I, I've always loved his, somebody asked him, what, asked him what was his religion. And he was just so, he was so down to earth and so direct and at the same time so yogic. And he said, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. And I just think that's, that's so beautiful and it's so much to the point. When we do good, we do feel good. We do feel larger. I always remember, uh, well, no, I don't remember. I was told after the fact, of, uh, well after the fact, decades after the fact, uh, that my, my father, who was uh, not an overtly spiritual man, really, uh, but he was covertly spiritual, more through his actions. His greatest delight in life was helping somebody else realize more of their own potential. And I remember hearing one, one time there was a, he, he, he was a, a serial entre, small business entrepreneur. And at one point he was, he was at a laundromat. And uh, at one point there was a, a young man walking past the laundromat, a classmate of one of my brothers. And uh, this is a man who really wasn't much of an achiever of anything in particular, and he was very, quite a bit handicapped. He had been a very, very severe auto accident where three other people had actually been killed, and he'd been uh, badly, badly injured. Long recovery time. And my father, who my brothers, or his classmates, didn't even know that my father knew of his existence, except from a, a newspaper article after the auto accident. Uh, his name was Harold Decker. And... Uh, one day, Harold Decker was limping past outside, past the laundromat, and uh, my father just stepped out, and he said, Decker, come in here. <laughs> the guy thought, what? So, so he walked in, he said, what are you going to do with your life? And my father was always a man of ideas. He loved ideas. He loved sharing ideas. He loved expansive ideas. And he said, I think you have very good interpersonal skills. And I come on, really? <laughs> uh, he said, yes, and I'm going to arrange an appointment with you for, for you to go up to, we were in Minnesota at that time, small town, Minnesota, up to Minneapolis, three, four hours away, and meet a city planner there. And he arranged it for him, he arranged it to go up to meet the city planner and Lo and behold, he became the city planner for Phoenix, Arizona, <laughs> later in his life. He had, a, and earlier in his serial entrepreneurship, uh, he had, he had uh, owned and run a Ben Franklin store, which was not like the Ben Franklin store in Grass Valley, which is all about arts and crafts. It was a, what was called then a variety store, also called a dime store because lots of things only cost a dime, I guess. I sort of lost touch with that era when things on, only cost a dime. But uh, one of his favorite things to, our favorite seasons to, was the Christmas season. He'd order lots and lots of toys because uh, he just loved to see kids with toys. And we had five kids in our family, and we, our job was to demonstrate the toys to 
to move the toys out of, out of that store. But something that I never really, I never really realized until I think really after my father had passed is that my father was never home on Christmas Eve. He was never home on Christmas Eve. And uh, he should have been home because the state law at that time was that stores had to close five o'clock. And so I knew his, we knew his store was closed, but we had about 10 people living in the house all the time, so one missing wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, it was only later that I found out what he did on Christmas Eve was that he took all the toys that hadn't sold. He wrapped them and took them and, and left them on the doorsteps of people who he's pretty sure couldn't afford to buy toys for their kids. That was what, what he was doing. And he never talked about it, never even mentioned it. None of us kids knew it. Only my mom knew about it. But there are so many people like that who are just simple ways, simple ways, expansive, not just to do a good thing, although it's a good thing, but to feel a good thing, to feel that sense of, of connection. And then when we can feel that sense of, of expansiveness, of connection, and, and offer that up to the sixth chakra, the bipolar chakra. <laughs> Actually, they're all bipolar, but the, the two poles, two magnetic poles of the sixth chakra are so distinct that it feels like it's two chakras. The medulla oblongata, the seat of ego, it gets a lot of bad press for that, and the, and the point between the eyebrows, the spiritual eye. And, you know, it's... The medulla has positive things going for it. For example, um, if you aspire to bring a lot of energy to the point between the eyebrows, as we've been talking about, you better have a lot of energy. And where does it come in? It comes in through the medulla oblongata. Now, I remember reading, I've forgotten now whether it was reading or hearing, uh, Swami writing about when you sit to meditate. He said, said, center your consciousness at the medulla oblongata. And I thought, what? <laughs> and it was the last thing, the last place we'd want to be centered. But it's like Davy was saying on Monday, except where you are. <laughs> accept where you are and move forward. And that's exactly what Swami was saying. So accept where you are, center your consciousness in the medulla oblongata and offer it toward the point between the eyebrows. Not just in meditation, but any time. Try and get out of that sense of, this is where I live. And he, he, Swami would say, you, you're defined not by your current state. You're not defined by what you've done, or your talents, your skills. You're defined by your aspirations. And we all want to be defined by that that spiritual eye, because that's our aspiration, that, that ceases, ceaseless bliss of our own true, true nature that, is, that has its center in our bodies, at least, at the point between the eyebrows. And I played with this over time when I, when I first heard it and just tried to recognize where in my brain is the activity happening. 
And you know, this is not very hard. You don't need a functional MRI to do this. All you got to do is just pay attention a little bit. And if you're at all like me, you'll find that if you're daydreaming or if you're fantasizing about your as yet unrecognized greatness, <laughs> that, that, that your, the activity in your brain is way back here around the medulla oblongata. And if you're just even a little bit awake, uh, engaged with what you're doing, it's further forward. And if you're focusing on God or some divine quality, it's way far forward. It's been the most helpful tool to not have to lug around a functional MRI uh, machine to really understand where I'm, where I'm coming from and to try and come more and more from the spiritual eye that, you know, Master said the fastest way to grow spiritually is to keep your consciousness at the spiritual eye. And it's also the easiest way to be joyful. You know, recently, some of you earlier this year may have read, heard about, or read, uh, there was an article in New York Times, an article in one of uh, Joe Dish and Davies, Touch of Light, uh, about the, uh, the Course in Happiness that was offered at Yale University and how it drew the largest enrollment in the history of the university. And uh, uh, they didn't call it a course in happiness. I think that probably sounded too, too unacademic. They said, uh, the science of well-being. <laughs> and uh, so later it was offered online, and I took the course, uh, which was interesting. Uh, a couple of things I noticed. One of them, just from seeing the faces of the students, I re realized that college is a whole lot more stressful now than it is when I was in college. Uh, unhappy, unhappy faces. I hope they were just being serious and attentive. But what, what I, and you know, that it presented a lot of psychological research, all these studies that have been done that, that show that. You know, a way to increase happiness is, well, a lot of ways in which people misperceive what will make them happy. That was one interesting thing. You're not going to be happy by uh, getting a lot of money, uh, duh, and, and, and uh, good looks and all, all this stuff, good grades, good job, um, but also some of the things that do make people happy, such, such as proven to be happy, such as kindness. Uh, expressing gratitude, more social connections, uh, getting enough exercise and sleep, uh, meditation. But what was interesting, what really struck me about this is not any of the results, which are, again, I think we all know about that. I hope we all know about that here, was that this is all statistical. You know, how do these studies happen? Well, they take two groups of people, and one group does something, and the other group doesn't. And they kind of compare them. And of course, it's all mushy, because some of the people who weren't doing anything accidentally get happier anyway. And some of the, some of the people who were doing their thing didn't get so much ha so happy. So it's all percentages. And you get a high enough percentage going on, and you can say, yes, kindness probably will make you happy. <laughs> Probably because it's only a probability. Because it didn't happen 100% of the time because they're just dealing with statistics. And I realized, gosh, we are so fortunate here. 
because we don't deal in statistics. We don't deal in probabilities. We deal in the mechanism that makes things happen. We deal in consciousness. We deal in energy. And that as we can gain more and more control over these, there is no probability involved. Yes, it depends on our degree of motivation. Yes, it depends on our skills with using the tools. But even a little bit of motivation, even a little bit of skill, will guaranteed make us happier. And a lot of motivation and a lot of skill will make us a whole lot happier. But we're so fortunate that we can be in this environment and in this teaching where we get beyond the maybes and get into the certainties. And the certainty is that if we use these tools, if we really bring our life force into the chakras, up to the chakras, up to the brain, up to the spiritual eye, that these things that we're aspiring to will happen, will happen. I just want to leave you with one thought, and that is that we have to realize that it's not just about tools. It's not just about techniques. It's not just about this spiritual technology, all of which, all of which is really, really valuable. But as Swami put it, all the techniques, all the things we do in our daily lives, trying to live these chakra, positive chakra qualities in our daily lives as, as a way to help awaken the chakras, all of this that we do is just that. It's what we can do. It's our part of the bargain. Our part of the bargain is to do these things that are going to lift our consciousness, that are going to open us up enough that we can receive God's grace. Because that grace is the true agent of personal transformation. Everything else is about us doing what we can to cooperate with it. And my prayer for all of us is that we will be very cooperative. <laughs> so let's close our class this morning by chanting Om three times. Really feel that you're broadcasting from any chakra that you want to broadcast from, broadcasting a positive quality of that chakra, sending out into the world in blessing. Let's rub the palms together. Oh.